Chapter 5 Mr. Manners sat in his parlor ten days after the beginning of Lent, full of his Sunday dinner and of perplexing thoughts all at once. He had eaten well and heartily after his week of spare diet, and then, while in high humor with all the world, first his wife and then his daughter had laid before him such revelations that all the pleasure of digestion was gone. It was but three minutes ago that Marjorie had fled from him in a torrent of tears, for which he could not see himself responsible, since he had done nothing but make the exclamations and comments that should be expected of a father in such a case. The following were the points for his reflection, to begin with those that touched him less closely. First, that his friend Mr. Audrey, whom he had always looked upon with reverence and a kind of terror because of his hotness in matters of politics and religion, had capitulated to the enemy and was to go to church at Easter. Mr. Manners himself had something of timidity in his nature. He was conservative, certainly, and practiced, when he could without bringing himself into open trouble, the old religion in which he had been brought up. He, like the younger generation, had been educated at Derby Grammar School, and in his youth had sat with his parents in the nave of the old Cluniac Church of St. James to hear Mass. He had then entered his father's office in Derby, about the time that the religious houses had fallen, and had transferred the scene of his worship to St. Peter's. At Queen Mary's accession, he had stood, with mild but genuine enthusiasm, in his lawyer's gown in the train of the sheriff who proclaimed her in Derby Marketplace, and stood in the crowd with corresponding dismay six years later to shout for Queen Elizabeth. Since that date, for the first eleven years he had gone, as did other Catholics, to his parish church secretly, thankful that there was no doubt as to the priesthood of his parson, to hear the English prayers. And then, to do him justice, though he heard with something resembling consternation the decision from Rome that compromise must cease, and that, henceforth, all true Catholics must withdraw themselves from the national worship, he had obeyed without even a serious moment of consideration. He had always feared that it might be so, understanding that delay in the decision was only caused by the hope that even now the breach might not be final or complete, and so was better prepared for the blow when it came. Since that time he had heard Mass when he could, and occasionally even harbored priests, urged thereto by his wife and daughter, and for the rest still went into Derby for three or four days a week to carry on his lawyer's business with Mr. Bedell, his partner, and had the reputation of a sound and careful man without bigotry or passion. It was then a shock to his love of peace and serenity to hear that yet another Catholic house had fallen, and that Mr. Audrey, one of his clients, could no longer be reckoned as one of his co-religionists. The next point for his reflection was that Robin was refusing to follow his father's example, and third, that somebody must harbor the boy over Easter, and that, in his daughter's violently expressed opinion, and with his wife's consent, he, Thomas Manners, was the proper person to do it. Last, that it was plain that there was something between his daughter and this boy, though what that was he had been unable to understand. Marjorie had flown suddenly from the room just as he was beginning to put his questions. It is no wonder, then, that his peace of mind was gone. Not only were large principles once more threatened, considerations of religion and loyalty, but also those small and intimate principles which, so far more than great ones, agitate the mind of the individual. He did not wish to lose a client, yet neither did he wish to be unfriendly to a young confessor for the faith. Still less did he wish to lose his daughter, above all to a young man whose prospects seemed to be vanishing. He wondered whether it would be prudent to consult Mr. Bedell on the point. He was a small and precise man in his body and face, as well as in his dress. His costume was, of course, of black, but he went so far as to wear black buckles, too, on his shoes, and a black hilt on his sword. His face was little and anxious, his eyebrows were perpetually arched as if in appeal, and he was accustomed, when in deep thought, to move his lips as if in a motion of tasting. So then he sat before his fire today after dinner, his elbow on the table where his few books lay, his feet crossed before him, his cup of drink untouched at his side, and meantime he tasted continually with his lips, as if better to appreciate the values and significances of the points for his consideration. It would be about half an hour later that the door opened once more and Marjorie came in again. 
She was in her fine dress today, fine that is according to the exigencies of the time and place, though sober enough if for a townhouse, in a good blue silk, rather dark, with a little ruff, and with lace ruffles at her wrists, and a quilted petticoat and silver buckles. For she was a gentleman's daughter, quite clearly, and not a yeoman's, and she must dress to her station. Her face was very pale and quite steady. She stood opposite her father. Father, she said, I am very sorry for having behaved like a goose. You were quite right to ask those questions, and I have come back to answer them. He had ceased tasting as she came in. He looked at her timidly, and yet with an attempt at severity. He knew that was due from him as a father. But for the present he had forgotten what questions they were. His mind had been circling so wildly. You are right to come back, he said. You should not have left me so. I am very sorry, she said again. Well, then, you tell me that Mr. Robin has nowhere else to go. She flushed a little. He has ten places to go. He has plenty of friends, but none have the right that we have. He is a neighbor. It was to me, first of all, that he told the trouble. Then he remembered. Sit down, he said. I must understand much better first. I do not understand why he came to you first. Why not, if he must come to this house at all, why not to me? I like the lad. He knows that well enough. He spoke with an admirable dignity and began to feel more happy in consequence. She had sat down, as he told her, on the other side of the table, but he could not see her face. It would have been better if he had, perhaps, she said, but... Yes, what but is that? Then she faced him, and her eyes were swimming. Father, he told me first because he loves me, and because I love him. He sat up. This was speaking outright, but she had only hinted at before. She must have been gathering her resolution to say this while she had been gone. Perhaps she had been with her mother. In that case, he must be cautious. You mean... I mean just what I say. We love one another, and I am willing to be his wife if he desires it, and with your permission, but... He waited for her to go on. Another but, he said presently, though with increasing mildness. I do not think he will desire it after a while, and, and I do not know what I wish. I am torn in two. But you are willing? I pray for it every night, she cried piteously, and every morning I pray that it may not be so. She was staring at him as if in agony, utterly unlike what he had looked for in her. He was completely bewildered. I do not understand one word. Then she threw herself at his knees and seized his hands. Her face was all torn with pain. And I cannot explain one word. Father, I am in misery. You must pray for me and have patience with me. I must wait. I must wait and see what God wishes. Now, now. Father, you will trust me, will you not? Listen to me. You must tell me thus. Do you love this boy? Yes, yes. And you have told him so? He asked you, I mean? Yes. He put her hands firmly from his knee. Then you must marry him, if matters can be arranged. It is what I should wish. But I do not know... Father, you do not understand, you do not understand. I tell you I am willing enough if he wishes it, if he wishes it. Again she seized his hands and held them, and again bewilderment came down on him like a cloud. Father, you must trust me. I am willing to do everything that I ought. She was speaking firmly and confidently now. If he wishes to marry me, I will marry him. I love him dearly. But you must say nothing to him, not one word. My mother agrees with this. She would have told you herself, but I said that I would, that I must be brave. I must learn to be brave. I can tell you no more. He lifted her hands and stood up. I see that I understand nothing that you say after all, he said with a fine fatherly dignity. I must talk with your mother. He found his wife half an hour later in the ladies' parlor, which he entered with an air as if nothing to say. With the same air of disengagement, he made sure that Marjorie was nowhere in the room and presently sat down. Mrs. Manners was well past her prime. She was over forty years old and looked over fifty, though she retained the air of distinction which Marjorie had derived from her but her looks belied her, and she had not one tithe of the subtlety and keenness of her daughter. She was, in fact, more suited to be wife to her husband than mother to her daughter. 
You have come about the maid, she said instantly, with disconcerting penetration and frankness. Well, I know no more than you. She will tell me nothing but what she has told you. She has some fiddle-faddle in her head, as maids will, but she will have her way with us, I suppose. She drew her needle through the piece of embroidery which she permitted to herself for an hour on Sundays, knotted the thread, and bit it off. Then she regarded her husband. I, I will have no fiddle-faddle in such a matter, he said courageously. Maids did not rule their parents when I was a boy. They obeyed them or were beaten. His wife laughed shortly and began to thread her needle again. He began to explain. The match was in all respects suitable. Certainly there were difficulties springing from the very startling events at Matstead, and it well might be that a man who would do as Mr. Audrey had done, or rather proposed to do, might show obstinacy in other directions too. Therefore there was no hurry. The two were still very young, and it certainly would be wiser to wait for any formal betrothal until Robin's future disclosed itself. But no action of Mr. Audrey's need delay the betrothal indefinitely. If need were, he, Mr. Manners, would make proper settlements. Marjorie was an only daughter. In fact, she was in some sort an heiress. The manor would be sufficient for them both. As to any other difficulties, any of the maidenly fiddle-faddle of which his wife had spoken, this should not stand in the way for an instant. His wife laughed again in the same exclamatory manner when he had done and sat stroking his knees. "'Why, you understand nothing about it, Mr. Manners,' she said. "'Did the maid not tell you she would marry him if he wished it? She told me so.' "'Then what is the matter?' he asked. "'I know no more than you.' "'Does he not wish it?' "'She says so.' "'Then?' Yes, that is what I say, and yet that says nothing. There is something more. Ask her. I have asked her. She bids me wait, as she bids you. It is no good, Mr. Manners. We must wait the maid's time. He sat, breathing audibly through his nose. These two were devoted to their daughter in a manner hardly to be described. She was the only one left to them, for the others, of whom two had been boys, had died in infancy or childhood, and in the event Marjorie had absorbed a love due to them all. She was a strain higher than themselves, thought her parents, and so pride in her was added to love. The mother had made incredible sacrifices, first to have her educated by a couple of old nuns who still survived in Derby, and then to bring her out suitably at Babington House last year. The father had cordially approved and joined in the sacrifices, which included an expenditure which he would not have thought conceivable. The result was, of course, that Marjorie, under cover of a very real dutifulness, ruled both her parents completely. Her mother acknowledged the dominion, at least, to herself and her husband. Her father pretended that he did not, and on this occasion rose perhaps nearer to repudiating it than ever in his life. It seemed to him unbearable to be bidden by his daughter, though with the utmost courtesy and affection, to mind his own business. So he sat and breathed audibly through his nose and meditated rebellion. And is the lad to come here for Easter? He asked at last. I suppose so. And for how long? So long as the maid appoints. He breathed louder than ever. And Mr. Manners, continued his wife emphatically, no word must be said to him on the matter. The maid is very plain as to that. Oh, we must let her have her way. Where is she gone? She nodded with her head to the window. He went to it and looked out. It was the little walled garden on which he looked, in which, if he had but known it, the lad whom he liked had kissed the maid whom he loved, and there walked the maid, at this moment with her back to him, going up the central path that was bordered with box. The February sun shone on her as she went, on her hooded head, her dark cloak and her blue dress beneath. He watched her go up and drew back a little as she turned, so that she might not see him watching, and as she came down again he saw that she held a string of beads in her fingers and was making her devotions. She was a good girl, that at least was a satisfaction. Then he turned from the window again. Well, said his wife, I suppose it must be as she says. It was an hour before sunset when Marjorie came out again into the walled garden that had become for her now a kind of sanctuary, and in her hand she carried a letter, sealed and inscribed. On the outside the following words were written. To Mr. Robin Audrey at Matstead, haste, haste, haste. 
Within, the sheet was covered from top to bottom with the neat convent hand she had learned from the nuns. The most of it does not concern us. It began with such words as you would expect from a maid to her lover. It continued to inform him that her parents were willing, and indeed desirous, that he should come to them for Easter, and that her father would write a formal letter later to invite him. It was to be written from Derby, this conspirator informed the other, that it might cause less comment when Mr. Audrey saw it, and was to be expressed in terms that would satisfy him. Finally, it closed as it had begun, and was subscribed by his loving friend, M.M. One paragraph, however, is worth attention. I have told my father and mother that we love one another, my Robin, and that you have asked me to marry you, and that I have consented should you wish to do so when the time comes. They have consented most willingly, and so Yezu have you in his keeping, and guide your mind aright. It was this paragraph that had cost her half of the hour occupied in writing, for it must be expressed just so and no otherwise, and its wording had cost her agony, lest on the one side she should tell him too much, and on the other too little. And her agony was not yet over, for she had to face its sending, and the thought of all that it might cost her. She was to give it to one of the men who was to leave early for Derby next morning, and was to deliver it at Matstead on the road. So she brought it out now to her sanctuary to spread it, like the old king of Israel, before the Lord. There was a promise of frost in the air tonight. Underfoot the moisture of the path was beginning not yet to stiffen, but rather to withdraw itself, and there was a cold clearness in the air. Over the wall beside the house, beyond the leafless trees which barred it like prison bars, burned the sunset, deepening and glowing redder every instant. Yet she felt nothing of the cold, for a fire was within her as she went again up and down the path of which her father had watched her walk, a fire of which as yet she could not discern the fuel. The love of Robin was there, that she knew, and the love of Christ was there, so she thought, and yet where the divine and the human passion mingled she could not tell, nor whether, indeed, for certain if it were the love of Christ at all, and not a vain imagination of her own as to how Christ in this case would be loved. Only she knew that across her love for Robin a shadow had fallen, she could scarcely tell when it had first come to her, and whence. Yet it had so come. It had deepened rapidly and strongly during the Mass that Mr. Simpson had said, and, behold, in its very darkness there was light. And so it had continued till confusion had fallen on her, which none but Robin could dissolve. It must be his word, finally, that must give her the answer to her doubts, and she must make it easy for him to give it. He must know, that is, that she loved him more passionately than ever, that her heart would break if she had not her desire and yet that she would not hold him back if a love that was greater than hers could be for him or his for hers called him to another wedding than that of which either had yet spoken. A broken heart and God's will done would be better than God's will should be avoided and her own satisfied. It was this kind of considerations, therefore, that sent her swiftly to and fro, up and down the path under the darkening sky, if they could be called considerations, which beat on the mind like a clamor of shouting. And as she went, she strove to offer all to God. She entreated him to do his will, yet not to break her heart, to break her heart, yet not Robin's to break both her heart and Robin's, if that will could not otherwise be served. Her lips moved now and again as she went, but her eyes were downcast and her face untroubled. As the bell in the court rang for supper, she went to the door and looked through. The man was just saddling up in the stable door opposite. Jack, she called, here is the letter, take it safely. Then she went in to supper. <laughs>